Welcome to Substance Use and New Paths to Recovery, a broadcast special from Call to Mind, American Public Media's initiative to foster new conversations about mental health. I'm Kimberly Adams. Since the COVID-19 pandemic started, we've heard about a number of alarming mental health crises, from the tragic rise in suicide deaths to the emergency declaration on youth mental health in this country. But there's a constant mental health crisis that's destroying communities, cycling through generations of families, causing illness, hardship, and even the deaths of millions of Americans. That mental health crisis is substance use disorder. This is a letter from a more senior person in our society. So she writes, Thank you so much. I'm 73 years old and have never experienced anything like this. I've never had a problem with drinking or drugs. So this has been very depressing for me to deal with. My doctor put me on Norco, which is hydrocodone, for fibromyalgia, and he gave me more and more till I developed a problem. I just don't know how to wean off. Please, please send me a reply. I'm praying you have a suggestion for me. That was Dr. Yasmin Hurd from Mount Sinai in New York. We'll hear from her later in the show. Since 1999, almost 1 million Americans have died from drug overdoses. More recently, in 2020, over 18 million people reported an illicit drug use disorder. New data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reveal overdose deaths increased 16% in 2021 compared to the previous year and significantly contributed to a decline in U.S. life expectancy. But in the United States, the most prominent substance use disorder is actually alcohol use. We live in a society where alcohol is everywhere. And the 2020 National Survey on Drug Use and Health found that for over 28 million people over the age of 12, the way they use alcohol is a problem. And despite the huge number of people who deal with any kind of substance use disorder, shame and discrimination keep many people from getting help or acknowledging that this is a mental health issue. And just like many other mental illnesses, there is hope. There are treatment options and paths to recovery. And that's what this show is about. Substance use disorder treatments. We'll explore research and ideas helping people recover well. And I'll pause here a moment to say that we at Call to Mind acknowledge the language we use when talking about mental health is important and can influence how people think. So during this show, we're not going to use the word abuse when we talk about substance use. And when talking about those who struggle, we'll call them people with substance use disorders and not addicts, alcoholics, or any other labels that would marginalize them to their illness. To get started, we wanted to learn about how these substances affect our brains. Dr. Scott Edwards researches neuroscience and psychiatry at the LSU Health Sciences Center in New Orleans. He's interested in motivation and exploring the brain systems responsible for people making the choices they do. We study motivation because we think it's a root cause of a lot of both what we do day to day in terms of pursuing what we call natural rewards, food, 
sex, water. Uh, and then we think it also forms the basis of a lot of mental disorders as well. And we can interrupt the way the brain normally handles these processes by what are called artificial rewards. So taking in alcohol to nicotine to what some people might refer to harder drugs like cocaine and, and opioids, they kind of take over this brain reward or motivation circuitry to promote substance use disorders and, and other types of conditions. What does understanding a person's motivation mean when it comes to understanding why some people develop substance use disorders and others don't? We think that's really tied into the motivational state in terms of how you're using that substance. And so if you're going out and you're having a, a drink at a party to unwind and to enhance friendliness within that party, uh, we think that's, you know, okay. We think that's protective in some way versus someone who would be drinking to self-medicate maybe a pre-existing condition and anxiety disorder, traumatic stress from the past. We think that that has you know, a way of, of impacting that person's sort of orientation to alcohol. And so drinking to excess you know, for that self-medication purpose can lead someone toward developing uh, an, what we call an alcohol use disorder. So from your lens, why do people develop addictions? There's a couple of different ways to think about it. You can think of pre-existing conditions, so to speak. Those could be genetic vulnerabilities, individuals that have a family history of uh, alcohol use disorder. That indicates that there's a pretty strong genetic component. Um, some people place that at about 50% of the susceptibility for that individual to develop an alcohol use disorder. And then there's the environmental part, and that ranges anywhere from early childhood, so traumatic experiences that you may uh, develop, other types of traumatic stress that you encounter over the course of your life. Age at first drink or uh, first binge drinking experience also plays a big role because your brain is essentially still developing up until around age 25. And so the more stress and the more uh, substances like alcohol you're exposed to um, in that early adolescent period, the more that it's uh, sort of creating, you know, this sort of finalized brain, if you want to think about it that way. And then there's the substance itself. So we know that alcohol and other drugs directly uh, change the brain. And so as you're taking these substances, particularly in, you know, excessive amounts, you are creating a new you, if you want to think about it that way. How does substance use actually change the brain in terms of creating a new you, like you mentioned? The brain develops pretty much up until the age of 25, and that's when our prefrontal cortex finally sets into place. And that prefrontal cortex is a region that's involved in decision-making basically. And so it's one of the reasons why young folks will often take risks. And so as these brain areas are maturing and the neurons, which is sort of the fundamental building block of the brain, are susceptible to alcohol, basically. So we know that when you drink, the alcohol goes throughout your body, including to the brain. But chronically, we know that alcohol can, in fact, damage those same brain areas. So with all this understanding about the brain and why people do what they do, why are substance use disorders so difficult to treat? Because it sounds like you know a lot about what they're doing to the brain. 
once you're uh, fully in this in this process of having a substance use disorder, your your brain has fundamentally changed. So, you know, you are a new you at that point. And it's a question of can we reverse these changes in the brain that have occurred as a result of heavy alcohol use or of heavy substance use over over time. The other big issue, and anyone who's tried to quit drinking or quit smoking knows this, that it's it's actually really easy to quit. It's very difficult to stay quit for any length of time. And so that's where this concept of relapse comes back in. And one interesting thing that we know is there's a lot of things that can drive relapse. And a lot of this is related to environmental cues, contexts, stress. So, you know, you might be doing really well managing your drinking and then you have a really bad day at work. And a lot of times that's going to promote a return to alcohol use in order to, you know, manage that new heightened stress level, basically. And there's other cognitive factors. So literally being in the same, you know, environment that you used to previously uh, drink, you you drive by your favorite bar, you see an old girlfriend or boyfriend uh, who you used to drink with, and those cues can then drive this this craving or this return to alcohol use. That's Dr. Scott Edwards from LSU Health Sciences Center in New Orleans. Even though scientists know a lot about what's happening in our brains with substance use disorder, treating it is still really challenging because every person needs a unique approach to recovery depending on their experiences, environment, and how they're hardwired. Plus, people judge. Those suffering with substance use disorders are often viewed as criminals or people with no willpower or simply reaping what they sow. Dr. Joji Suzuki is a director of addiction psychiatry at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He explained how deep-rooted discrimination contributes to the problem. When the World Health Organization uh, did a study to examine the most stigmatized diagnoses, both physical and mental health conditions, substance use disorders come at up top. Um, what contributes to that? Certainly one of them is the idea that we tend to believe that substance use disorders are essentially a personal choice or that it's a moral failing and that it's historically been tied to the criminal justice system. And we have a long tradition of treating substance use disorders as a criminal justice problem, not a public health issue. There seems to be a lot more acceptance when it comes to things like alcohol use disorders or nicotine use disorders. Why is alcohol use perceived so differently from other kinds of substance use disorders? Well, there's a long tradition of us, you know, embracing alcohol as part of our lives, right? I mean, you know, at every street corner, it's part of every major social function and different religious organizations use alcohol as a sacrament. I mean, it's, it's part of our lives. Also, there's a clear or a clearer understanding of safe use or safer use. With alcohol, we talk about sort of the you know, um, safer drinking limits. And the, the message is that if you keep your drinking below that level, it tends to minimize the potential harm associated with drinking. You know, moderate drinking is considered a reasonable course. We generally don't have that with other substances. We don't say if you smoke only two cigarettes a day, <laughs> it's safe. You know, we tend to have this sort of black and white view of most other substances. 
People rarely begrudge someone using nicotine patches or e-cigarettes or gums or whatever to try to stop smoking, but people can be very critical of using medications to treat opioid use disorders. What's behind that resistance? So I'm glad you're asking that question. I'm glad you used that analogy because you're absolutely right. I don't hear people complaining about the dangers of nicotine replacement therapy and how that's replacing one addiction for the other because people understand that it's actually effective. It works, but people believe that it's replacing one addiction for the other. So people will say that buprenorphine or methadone, you're simply just transitioning to another addiction. That comment confuses two separate issues. One is opioid dependence, which is physiologic dependence to you know medications, which can occur to opioids, which occur with benzodiazepines. It occurs with blood pressure medications that have nothing to do with being psychoactive. But addiction or substance use disorder is actually more than that. Substance use disorder is characterized by a behavioral syndrome of what we sometimes call the three C's, loss of control, cravings, and negative consequences. And so it's really the inability to control this particular behavior which is accompanied by strong subjective urges to use, seeking, the wanting, the craving. And then finally, there are negative consequences associated with this behavior. When somebody is using heroin or illicit fentanyl uh, and injecting it, for example, they're unable to control it. They have strong subjective urges to use and their lives are being destroyed. Once those individuals start medication treatment with buprenorphine or methadone, they still continue to have physiologic dependence to opioids. That, you know, there's, there's no question. That's absolutely true. But now they're able to control it. They've actually been shown repeatedly cravings for opioids go down dramatically and their lives get better. But I think the other issue that people have is sort of, well, I don't like people having to take this medication every day. And that's true. You know, I, I, I would agree. It, it'd be preferable if we didn't have to have patients take it every single day. But opioid use disorder is a life-threatening condition. And the next relapse actually can be a fatal one. And what we like to say is that dead people don't recover. If people overdose and die, there's absolutely no hope of recovery, which makes sense. So in those early months of recovery, where people remain at risk for relapsing, we should do everything possible to keep people alive. And once patients are on medications, their risk for death goes down by at least 70%. Another treatment approach I want to ask you about is harm reduction. Can you explain what that is and how it applies in this context? Harm reduction approaches are used ubiquitously in our, in our society. Uh, seatbelts is a classic example of a harm reduction strategy, right? But when seatbelts were initially introduced, there were people who were opposed to it because they believed that it could increase harm. It would lead people to drive recklessly. Which right, kind of makes sense, right? You, you'd understand. But I think nobody would argue with seatbelts today. <laughs> you know, it seems like a pretty good idea. But for whatever reason, when it's applied to substance use disorders, people are more reluctant to embrace that. And somehow the only option is to abstain completely. Let's say somebody's using heroin seven days a week. And they say, I'd like to use it only two days a week. A lot of clinicians, believe it or not, are uncomfortable with that, even though there's a clear reduction in harm. Another good example where it comes out is supervised or safe injection or safe consumption facilities where individuals can come in and use substances like heroin or other other things in a supervised setting with staff available, clean equipment to avoid infectious complications uh, and to allow interventions if somebody overdoses, for example. 
there's a strong reluctance for most communities to really adopt that. We actually have supervised consumption facilities all across the country, which we call bars, right? Would you rather people be drinking on the street or would you rather, rather have some supervised setting in which it is permitted, but in a controlled way? Now, of course, bars can produce problems. But what I'm saying is that, you know, would, would you rather have no bars and let people drink on the streets or would you rather have a supervised consumption facility? So, yeah. So, again, I think there's a growing recognition that harm reduction is a very viable approach. It helps save lives. And once people are able to reduce their harm, they may continue to reduce their use, for example. But even if not, any reduction in drug use has benefits. You may have just broken some people's brains there talking about bars as harm reduction facilities akin to, you know, controlled injection sites. It kind of makes sense, right? We already embrace that idea. <laughs> but when it comes to drug use, we want to keep it hidden. And somehow it's going to go away. Yet more people are dying and dead people don't recover. What is the consequence for the U.S. labor force of all of this untreated or undertreated substance use disorder? So there's been an addiction workforce crisis in this country forever, meaning Clinics that treat substance use disorders are perpetually understaffed, they are underpaid, low morale, high burnout, high turnover, because the demand far exceeds the supply. The government conducts a survey every year and tries to get a sort of a snapshot of what's happening you know, at the population level. But one of the questions they, they answer is, of those who have a substance use disorder in a given year, how many of them access any type of treatment? it's less than 10%. For mental health conditions like depression, it's about 50%. For physical health conditions like diabetes, it's probably 70, 80%. So we do a pretty decent job of capturing individuals with chronic diseases like diabetes. We're not as good with depression or other psychiatric conditions, but for substance use disorders, it's dismal, meaning that the vast majority of people who actually want treatment, never get it, never offered, can't access it. There's nowhere to go. But what that means is we could double the workforce overnight it will still not make a huge dent in terms of the overall need that's out there. Part of the solution has to be that the entire healthcare system, not just addiction specialists, have to take ownership, particularly because the opioid crisis was caused in part by our behavior, right? Overprescribing of opioid pain medications. And then to not take full responsibility for the consequences, I think, is, is wrong. If only 10% of the people with a substance use disorder are getting any kind of treatment, you have to imagine that's showing up across every single industry in terms of productivity, in terms of absenteeism, in terms of just how we're interacting in the workplace. Oh, yeah, no, no doubt about it. And as the number of overdose deaths climb, and, you know, we saw the largest number of overdose deaths ever recorded in a 12-month period in the United States in the past year. Concurrent to that, there's a dramatic increase in alcohol use. There's an increase in stimulant use. So cocaine and methamphetamine, they have been both increasing. And also a mental health crisis. This is all happening at the same time. And so if we don't treat substance use disorders even more aggressively uh, and, you know, providing evidence-based treatment, these things could get worse. That's Dr. Joji Suzuki from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. 
Drug overdoses are claiming a record number of lives in the United States, over 100,000 people in 2021. But opioid treatment centers around the country are struggling to serve all the people who need help. Michelle Wiley, a health reporter from Minnesota Public Radio News, brings us a story from her state. Before starting treatment, Sean Victor Huerta described his life as pure chaos. He spent his days hustling to get enough money to buy opioids or selling drugs to pay off his debts. The opioids he was taking fueled Huerta's paranoia, he says, and isolated him from everyone around him, including his daughter. I, I was not a father, even though I had a child. I disassociated myself with it. absolutely everyone in my life. Then, in March 2017, he got into a car crash. Huerta went to DWI court, where they recommended he go to the Center for Alcohol and Drug Treatment in northern Minnesota and ask for help. So he did. And he's been in treatment ever since. Methadone was the catalyst that allowed me to get the healing that I needed. For Huerta and others, starting treatment can mark a change in their life. But these days, it's harder to get into an opioid treatment program. Across the state, clinics say they're short-staffed and operating over capacity, all while trying to serve people who desperately want treatment. Then I'm going to hand you a cup and an alcohol wipe because of COVID. And I'm going to have you put in just a little bit of water because the methadone has a pH that's a little more acidic. Methadone has been used for decades to treat substance use disorder. The drug, which itself is a synthetic opioid, can reduce cravings. Three drugs are federally approved to treat opioid use disorder, but methadone is the only one solely provided through approved treatment programs. There are 16 of these programs in Minnesota. Many of those clinics are operating at a capacity that the state considers uncomfortably high. Assistant Commissioner Eric Grumdahl oversees programs and policies that serve people with substance use disorder diagnoses at the State Department of Human Services. He says they started seeing this trend in May. You know, we would like to see our utilization rate be more like 90 percent instead of its current rate of 95 percent. Because what that would represent is that we would have a much higher likelihood of a nearby program being ready to say yes to whoever wanted to come in. At the root of the problem is staffing. Clinics, which are highly regulated by both state and federal guidelines, rely on licensed alcohol and drug counselors, or LADCs, who work with patients to help them progress, make dosage changes, and provide comprehensive support. But programs say they're having trouble hiring and retaining enough counselors to meet demand. Even before the pandemic put a greater strain on healthcare workers, the job of counseling at an opioid treatment program could be overwhelming. Dr. Charles Reznikoff is an addiction medicine physician at Hennepin Healthcare. On a typical day, a counselor will interact with a nurse, a supervisor, a doctor. They'll collect urine toxicology multiple times and send it to the lab. They're, they're drawing blood tests. Their patient needs to go to the primary care clinic, so they're coordinating primary care follow-up. They're also holding counseling sessions with their patients. One counselor can take on a maximum of 50 clients at a treatment program, according to state rules, something they've had to do at many clinics due to capacity issues. And along with those patients comes a mountain of paperwork, due in large part to the state and federal regulations associated with the drugs. It's easy for people to get behind. If counselors leave, clinics aren't always able to find someone to replace them. Clients have to be spread out among other counselors who must file variance paperwork with the state in order to take on more than 50 patients. 
but that can make things even worse. Everybody's work gets harder, people stress out, and then you lose another counselor, and it can get into a really bad, vicious cycle. A recent report from the U.S. Government Accountability Office found several barriers to recruiting and retaining behavioral health workers like addiction counselors, especially those from diverse backgrounds. Those barriers include student loan debt, a lack of training for providers to serve diverse populations, and high workloads leading to burnout. Survey data from the Minnesota Department of Health found that in 2022, 15% of planned exits among drug and alcohol counselors were due to burnout or job dissatisfaction, nearly double from before the pandemic. As qualified workers have their pick of positions, they may choose other opportunities, and it can be hard for opioid treatment programs to compete, especially in greater Minnesota. Of the 16 opioid treatment programs in Minnesota, only four are outside the Twin Cities, in smaller cities around the state. More than 100 miles north of the metro area is the Center for Alcohol and Drug Treatment's ClearPath Clinic. The Duluth program has the space for 475 people who drive from all over to get treatment. So what they do is everyone's given a number for confidentiality. One client comes from as far as the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Now the clinic is full and unable to take on new patients. As of mid-December, there are about 40 people on the waiting list to get in. And for those hoping for a spot, program director Jen Villa says the stakes are high. There, we have people dying who are sitting on our waiting list trying to get in. And there's no one, there's nowhere else for them to go. That's not within two hours of here. State officials say they're working on standing up more clinics to address the ongoing need. Now, Sean Victor Huerta's days start early. He's up at 5 a.m. to make sure his daughter, who's 11, and his girlfriend's kids are ready and off to school. He's been a peer recovery support specialist for the last three years and does regular Zoom meetings with incarcerated people on the path to recovery. I'm consistent. I live with integrity. I'm a hard worker. Again, I'm an engaged father. Where he used to describe his days as chaotic, now he means it in a good way. Healthy chaos. (laughs) (laughs) He says his life right now, after years in treatment, looks like normalcy. For Call to Mind, I'm Michelle Wiley from NPR News. From the lives lost to the impact on communities, it's impossible to calculate the true cost of the opioid epidemic. But the U.S. government has estimated the economic cost, $1.5 trillion a year, according to a 2020 report from Congress. That's money being spent on additional health care and due to lost productivity. Last year, the Biden administration announced a record $1.5 billion in grants to states and tribes to support opioid treatment programs and other recovery services. This year's spending bill allocated tens of millions of dollars more. One goal of that spending is to increase the use of medication to treat opioid use disorders. But as Mitchell Hartman from Marketplace reports, there are many obstacles in the way of increasing access to those treatments. A few years ago, Cordray Rose was struggling. You know, I was on the streets of Portland, homeless, and using various opiates and also methamphetamines, and eventually opiates took over my life. The 28-year-old recently attended a celebration of Oregon's recovery community. He works for a peer support group. 
One of the things that helped me the most in my recovery was medically assisted treatment. It just completely changed the game for me. Rose is talking about medication for opioid use disorder, prescription drugs that block cravings and symptoms of withdrawal and help people go about their lives without risking illegal opioid use and overdose. The FDA has approved three medications, methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. The Biden administration wants universal access to these drugs by 2025, but restrictions at the federal, state, and local levels won't make that easy. The Federal Drug Enforcement Agency, which primarily deals with illegal drugs, tightly regulates the opioid treatment programs that dispense legal methadone, an opioid derivative. And, says Mark Perino, president of the American Association for the Treatment of Opioid Dependence, Regulations restrict where OTPs can open. Zoning restrictions have certainly been a problem. And then, of course, even to this day, the classic NIMBY syndrome. When it comes to methadone clinics, neighbors often say, not in my backyard. Consider West Virginia. It has the highest overdose death rate in the country. And the state currently has a moratorium on opening any new opioid treatment programs. It does sometimes feel like we're banging our head up against a wall, right? That's Lee Storrow with the Community Education Group. He's been lobbying the West Virginia legislature to lift the moratorium. It is no secret that the opioid epidemic has hit West Virginia really hard. And the tool that we know, decades of research have shown methadone to be safe and effective in reducing drug use. We cannot have a new provider open Dr. Jean-Marie Perrone at the Penn Center for Addiction Medicine and Policy argues opioid treatment drugs should be dispensed pretty much like any other prescription drug. And she thinks it should be much easier for patients to stay in treatment, even if they don't pass drug tests or attend counseling sessions. You know, counseling can be a big burden. A lot of opioid treatment programs require patients to come in three days a week for a group. And on top of coming in every day to get your methadone, that's not conducive to working and having a family. Expanding access to medication would prevent more overdose deaths, says Dr. Nasser Khan, who supervises a nationwide chain of treatment programs. But he doubts it would be successful for most patients long-term without other mental health supports. Medication alone doesn't teach patients new strategies. It doesn't help them build new peer groups. It doesn't help them critically examine their behavioral patterns. One measure to expand care that is getting traction? Taking opioid treatment on the road. This one is actually going out to our Hillsboro location on a daily basis. One of the clinics Khan oversees in Portland, Oregon, just got a customized medical van. These are now permitted nationwide under new DEA regulations. Reaching people with medical vans and telehealth services is especially important in underserved rural areas. But no matter where you live, there are barriers to just getting into medication treatment. Sometimes you don't have the right insurance. Sometimes you can't afford to pay for the treatment. Skyla Harrison supervises youth peer counselors in Portland and is herself in recovery. You know, a client doesn't have any transportation. They have to be there at 7 in the morning every single morning in order to get their daily dose. And sometimes it takes weeks to be seen. And by that time, the withdrawals are so bad that most people go back out to use. 
advocates argue these medications should be available with little to no waiting time to as many people as want them for as long as they need them. Francis McGaffey at the Pew Charitable Trust's Substance Use Prevention and Treatment Initiative says the goal isn't necessarily for the patient to get off medication at some point. It's to no longer be using illicit opioids that carry a high risk of overdose. And for some people, that will require staying on the medication long term, like a blood pressure or diabetes medication. Like the medications I've been taking to try and control my blood sugar for several years, since I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes in my late 50s, a result of heredity, lifestyle, and obesity. That's more or less how opioid medication is working for Cordray Rose. I've been on it for about two years. I don't plan on staying on it forever, but right, right now it just it just helps me. It's made it to where I can hold down my job. I've worked at my job for over two years, as long as I've ever kept a job. Rose takes his medicine to treat his opioid use disorder. I take mine because I'm diabetic. And we may both be taking them to stay healthy for a long, long time. Reporting from Portland, Oregon, I'm Mitchell Hartman for Call to Mind. Like Mitchell just said, many people managing a chronic health condition like diabetes, asthma, or heart disease may need to be on medication for the rest of their lives. And those drugs are usually available at a local pharmacy. And that is the case for some medications to treat substance use disorders, say if you're in recovery for alcohol use, for example. But when it comes to something like opioids, people trying to recover can't pick up the medicine they need at their pharmacy or keep it in their homes. Dr. Yasmin Hurd is a director of the Addiction Institute at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. She says the way substance use disorders are treated and the options available need an overhaul. Substance use disorders are complicated to treat because it's a brain disorder, plain and simple. There is no treatment or cure for any other brain disorder, but we don't talk about that and say, oh, you know, throw our hands up, depression, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease. So it's not different. The brain is the most complex organ. I love the brain. It's beautiful (laughs) to me, but it's extremely complicated. The path to recovery is that if you can't live a normal life, you can't recover. Um, Our own research, we're developing non-addictive medications, because I think that like any other disorder, someone with a substance use disorder should just be able to go into a regular pharmacy, pick up their medications without the stigma of someone saying, oh, they're walking into, quote unquote, uh, you know, an addiction clinic. They just go into their pharmacy, pick up their medication. They still talk to their doctors. They still go in and their doctors are not in a separate clinic. It's part of healthcare. When we make the treatment of substance use disorder part of regular healthcare, more people would be more honest with their, their doctors early on. And until we get to the disorders, it's just like any other disorder, the earlier you can treat, the better the outcome. And especially for young people. You've overseen a huge body of research looking at cannabis and one of its components, cannabidiol, known as CBD. What role do you see these particular components having of treating substance use disorders? I have been studying the neurobiology of cannabis for many years. So for me, a goal is 
developing new treatments for substance use disorders. I did some pilot studies in humans and people suffering from a heroin use disorders, when we gave them CBD, it reduced their craving and it reduced their anxiety. And it's the anxiety that triggers the cravings and so on. There are a number of important things about CBD. One, it's not addictive a non-addictive medication that also has a long-lasting effect. So one of the things that we saw in our animal model was that even weeks after the last CBD was given to them, it still reduced their drug-seeking behavior. And when we brought people back into our lab a week after their last CBD administration, it also reduced their, it still can reduce their craving and anxiety. Importantly also, CBD is interesting because when substance use disorders, people don't realize it's the triggers. People are not trying to get high all the time. It's, it, when you have this disorder, it is about dealing with the negative issues that happen in your brain. The environmental cues, stressors, trigger the craving. And that's what CBD is helping to reduce. So if we can have people still live in their environments, but the environmental cues do not induce these triggers because we could treat substance use disorders for a significant number of people if we completely move them from their normal environment. And that's another thing about developing medications. When you're trying to develop an, um, treatments, you have to actually develop treatments that are part of people's everyday life, their reality. And I think that that's one thing that's really had not really been done. What do Americans need to know to really change this conversation about substance use disorder? I think Americans need to know that this is a mental health disorder. And like any other sort, if you see your loved one starting to have a problem, the earlier the conversation, the earlier someone can get access to treatment. And for substance use disorder, we know that the earlier access to treatment, the better the outcome the better it is for someone to actually recover. When we allow people to go into the depths and deep stages of their disorder, and that's when we start trying to have a conversation, we know that the journey back to recovery is much longer. The same thing for doctors. Every physician, every doctor visit, regular physicians, they don't have to be addiction medicine physicians, they should be asking their patients about their substance use. And if our society didn't stigmatize it, didn't criminalize it, people would be more honest with their physicians so that they could get help earlier. That's Dr. Yasmin Hurd from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Many doctors and nurses are looking for new ways to bring compassion and empathy to their work treating people with substance use disorders in and out of hospitals. This kind of care is crucial for new parents, especially those with a substance use disorder and whose children are born with substance dependencies. Reporter Sarah Ventry visited a nursery in Phoenix, Arizona, that specializes in caring for these families. Come on, baby, I know. From the outside, Hushabai Nursery looks pretty unassuming. It's a small, almost industrial-looking building on a bustling six-lane street in central Phoenix. But inside, it's something of a sanctuary for parents, with everything you need to care for a newborn, especially one going through withdrawals. Baby gets their own bassinet. We have light therapy if they need to from being jaundiced. This vibrates, makes noises, does it all. 
probably the best bassinet ever. This is Joseph um, Font, or Joey. He's a peer support at Hushabai, teaching classes and running support groups for parents. I used for about a decade. Personally, I used heroin. I had so many failed attempts to get sober. He knows these rooms so well because at one time, he was here with his baby. I think it was a catalyst for me. Like, I get to have this little tiny human who I talked with on not even 24 hours old. I'm like talking to him. Hey, buddy, how am I going to take care of you? I don't know what I'm going to do. Font knew he wanted to get sober before his son was born. And then one day... I saw a poster for Hushabai on the wall at the methadone clinic. He went to his first meeting where he met Tara Sundum. She was a very lively lady at 9 a.m. Hey. Hi, Tara. Thank you so much for making time for me on a Saturday. Yeah. Sundum is a neonatal nurse practitioner and the executive director of Hushabai Nursery. She used to work in the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit at a hospital. The NICU cares for newborns with lots of different health issues. But in 2015, Sundam noticed an influx of babies who were going through something called NAS, neonatal abstinence syndrome. That's a set of symptoms a newborn can experience when they're withdrawing from certain substances, like opioids. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in 2014, four times as many infants were born with NAS compared to 1999. One mom explained to me withdrawal as being the worst flu and migraine times 100. So vomiting, diarrhea, inability to sleep. For an infant, the NICU with its bright lights and beeping monitors isn't exactly the most comforting place to go through that. Here at Hushabai, babies are gently rocked and reassured, and a nurse is instructing a new volunteer about how to soothe an uncomfortable baby with a long, warm bath. The spa or sit down. This kind of approach is one that nurses in the NICU often just don't have time to practice. Sundam says there's one moment in particular she remembers, when a baby in the NICU had finally gotten to sleep. And the frazzled attending nurse didn't have the most compassionate reaction when the baby's mom showed up. She was so excited to see her baby. And the nurse looked at the mom and pointed at her and said, don't touch your baby. The mom just like immediately just stopped in her tracks. What the nurse, I believe, meant was that her baby just fell asleep and stay here, sit at the bedside. Uh, she sat there for an hour. When she left that day, she never came back. At Hushabai and other places with a similar philosophy, there's a new care model called Eat, Sleep, Console. Jocelyn Maurer is a NICU nurse at Banner University Medical Center in Tucson, which has a neonatal abstinence syndrome program. Can they eat a normal amount for a baby their age? Can they sleep for at least an hour at a time without their withdrawal symptoms waking them up? And can they be consoled in a reasonable amount of time if they do become fussy? <laughs> Programs that use eat, sleep, console, while relatively new, tend to have shorter stays, use fewer narcotics than hospitals, and, according to Tara Sundum, view the health of the child from a broader perspective. So not baby-centered, but family-centered. It's the whole entire family that we need to heal to reduce the number of adverse childhood experiences to make this baby have the best outcome possible for them to thrive and be healthy. Part of that means making parents feel safe too. 
These are her clothes and these are her size three diapers. This is Cassie Freund. She's used Heshabai since her now 10-month-old daughter was born. She remembers the judgment she felt right after she gave birth. I was scared everyone was out to get me and take my baby away. I was like, everybody wants to know what I've done wrong and I'm tracked up everywhere. And like, these marks are going to give me away to everybody. And they're going to be like, she doesn't, she doesn't deserve this baby. Hushabai helped Freund get settled with her new baby and navigate working with the Department of Child Safety. She stayed sober and improved relationships with her family. And that's given her a lot of hope. Like the fact that I gave birth to this perfect baby gives me the thought that every mother that has come through here, how bad she is. Like, I could I could tell her no matter what, there, it gets better. So before she heads out, she bags up a stack of clothes she picked out to give to another mom she met at Hushabai, her best friend, also in recovery, whose son is growing quickly. For Call to Mind, I'm Sarah Ventry in Phoenix. Hushabai Nursery is changing the trajectory for some families and babies born with substance dependencies. But as Sarah just told us, they've also created an inclusive community. And that sense of community is often just the additional support someone needs in recovery. Support groups are a legacy treatment tool. Alcoholics Anonymous may be the most well-known, with more than 2 million members worldwide. The program doesn't work for everyone or every substance use disorder. But there are new support communities gathering people with shared experiences. The Minnesota Nurses Peer Support Network is a nonprofit with the mission to connect nurses seeking recovery from substance use disorders with each other and resources. Carrie Kappel is a registered nurse and co-chair of the group, and she shared why there's a specific need for peer support among nurses. Nurses suffer from the same stressors that everybody else does, but they have some unique issues as well. We sometimes think that because we have some medical knowledge and education that it protects us from the possible development of a, of a disease like addiction. We have access to, to a lot of medications, um, and so it can be easy to sometimes self-medicate either out of our own medicine cabinet or from drugs that are left over at work. But nurses and uh, and other healthcare professionals have additional stressors of uh, protecting the public and seeing life and death uh, on a day-to-day basis. So those are unique stressors. There's also an additional stigma for healthcare professionals and specifically nurses when diagnosed and recovering from the disease of addiction and really needing to connect with other nurses. I know I did when I w- was going through my own recovery. What was it like sort of starting to share that experience openly? It was really a struggle. When I got into recovery, there wasn't a a nurse's peer support network. There was not a network of nurses that I could connect with to navigate some of the feelings of shame and guilt, and I should have known better, that I had going on for myself. And so I would seek out folks in in the rooms of of 12-step support meetings, which is my fellowship. I would approach people after meetings and say, do you work in healthcare profession? And it was some connection. 
Um, nurses sometimes have issues in returning to work. Um, they have challenges in um, being terminated from places of employment. There's a higher standard for healthcare professionals with a substance use disorder. Most states have what are called alternative to discipline monitoring programs that provide monitoring for healthcare professionals. And so healthcare professionals often are monitored um, during their recovery and for years afterwards to make sure that they are taking care of themselves and are well. So they have some additional challenges and having somebody that is walking that same journey to help you navigate that, especially early on, is really key. Why are peer support groups such a powerful tool for someone seeking recovery? Peer support I think has been around for a really long time. Uh, If you look in the rooms of of 12-step groups, I think that was the most early navigation of of peer support. I think we've come a long way from that in in offering different types of peer support so that folks can find exactly the fit for them. Nurses Peer Support Network isn't meant meant to take the place of those other types of support that individuals might still want or need. It is an addition. It allows the nurses to find connection to somebody else who's navigating that same journey, who has some stigma about probably themselves and how they feel about their recovery, their disease, the acceptance that they actually have a disease and being able to to navigate that and walk that journey. It helps them also navigate the societal stigma that's still out there around the disease of addiction. Um, I think we've come a long way in navigating some of that. And I think the crisis of opioids nationally has moved that conversation because the individuals that are dying of the disease of addiction, they are everyday individuals their kids, their moms, their dads, their nurses, and that changes the conversation. And we're able to see ourselves in those individuals. It could be me. And for me, it was me. Thank you to Carrie Kappel from the Minnesota Nurses Peer Support Network. While working on this show, lives were lost to substance use disorders all over the country, including the loved one of a team member. So we dedicate this show to all those battling substance use and addiction and the families and friends doing their best to support them. And as we've been saying, there are paths to recovery and there is hope. If you or someone you know is struggling, please know you're not alone. You can call SAMHSA's confidential and free helpline at 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357 or call, text, or chat with 988. You've been listening to Substance Use and New Paths to Recovery, part of a national series from Call to Mind, American public media's initiative to foster new conversations about mental health. Support for this program is provided by the Sozo Say Foundation and the David and Laura Lovell Foundation. This special was written and produced by our senior producer, Jessica Bari. Our technical director was Alex Simpson, and this show was edited and hosted by me, Kimberly Adams. A special thank you to all of our guests and everyone who shared their personal stories and Mount Sinai for sharing audio with us. Follow Call to Mind on Twitter, 
Instagram, and Facebook at Call to Mind Now. And you can find helpful resources and past programs on our website, calltomindnow.org. Thank you for joining us for Substance Use and New Paths to Recovery, a broadcast special by Call to Mind from APM, American Public Media.